Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello. Today, my guest is Danny Haifong, co-author with Roberto Servant of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Hi, Danny. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, um, congratulations on the book. Um, It's been out for, what, about a year now? Yes, a little over a year. Right, right. Well, I see um, in the uh, endorsement section at the front, you have some pretty uh, high-level names there, uh, a a good couple pages. Uh, That's um, pretty good. You're, you're, You're really part of a network, aren't you? Yes, um, you know it took a lot of work to to get the book out to those folks like Cornell West and Michael Parenti, but we were so honored and and uh, happy that they decided to provide a blurb and to help get the book's message out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you tell us uh, to start off? Why don't you tell us a little a bit about yourself? And um, I, I suppose also how it's related to um you know to the topic of your book as well sure i think those two things are are very related so i am a journalist and an activist i live in the new york city area um you know i grew up as a a working class person on the east coast of the united states Uh, i'm part vietnamese and a white american and throughout my life it was pretty clear that uh, racism and class exploitation were two central issues in my own uh, general just condition of life. But then also, you know, over the course of my own history, uh, I began to really politicize my understanding of uh, the realities of injustice that exist in the United States and abroad. And I began to write for a Black Agenda Report, which is a, a Black left um, independent media uh, journal that's online. And uh, through my work with them, I learned that, uh, you know, there is this insidious 
ideology of American exceptionalism, which is just so pervasive in the dominant narratives in the United States, how the U.S. political class and the ruling class talk and uh, purvey our understandings about reality to us and about uh, how we should think about uh, not only the U.S. government, but the social system that we live in here, which causes so much uh, terror, both uh, here domestically and all around the world. So this book really got started when Roberto Cervent emailed me after I'd been writing for Black Agenda Report for about four years. He emailed me saying that he was thinking about writing a book of uh, short essays on the topic of American exceptionalism, but that he felt that Black Agenda Report's work needed to be a part of this project. And he wanted to elicit me to uh, contribute to it. And so we began to talk about how that would work. Um, he's a professor, you know, I'm a journalist and an activist. So we were really bringing together the uh, academic world as well as, you know, the world of uh, struggle against social justice on the ground and attempting to uh, really promote a message that uh, people could understand, but also that uh, wasn't just. Um, you know, it wasn't just about intellectual exercising. It was really about trying to point a vision forward for activists and organizers and students and workers as well to be able to understand their reality so they can be better equipped to, to transform it. Right, right. So, um, so really it was kind of the, um, the work that you've been, it's kind of a culmination of the work you've been doing over the past, uh, what, four years now? Um, and and um, and the work that I, um, Roberto Servant has been doing. In, interesting. The, the, now, your, the title has, I think, um, three main concepts that I think it's important for us to, to understand and clarify. It, it's crucial um, to the whole series of narratives because it's not like a a, a monograph of, of one book from a beginning to end as you said it's like 21 essays correct yep yes yeah 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 and and the concepts that run throughout all of this is american exceptionalism and american innocence and then fake news as well but let, let's start off with american exceptionalism and american innocence could you explain it uh, for the listeners, um, why it's important and um, why you insist, as, as I see throughout the book, you know, that these ideas have to always be considered together? Yes, uh, we believe that both American exceptionalism and American innocence are really the dominant narratives that frame our understandings of all political issues and um, are really the dominant ideologies that the U.S. ruling class employs to achieve its objectives of profiteering, exploitation, war, and oppression um, all around the world and, and in the United States as well. Uh, we define American exceptionalism as uh, an ideology that presumes that the United States is a force for good in the world and it positions the United States' development process as one that is marked by uh, the very long-standing Western imperial notion that uh, the West is the most civilized and advanced form of society that has ever 
come to be and that the United States is actually the apex of Western civilization itself. While American innocence, on the other hand, uh, while American exceptionalism really discusses the United States as an entity and a, and a nation uh, beyond and above all others, American innocence really kicks in and must be considered with American exceptionalism because whenever the uh, notion of American exceptionalism is challenged, uh, there is usually a strong backlash to it, whether that is a rhetorical and ideological backlash or whether that's a real material backlash. And it usually takes the form of a defense of the sanctity of American exceptionalism by presuming that any wrongdoings, any criticisms against, uh, let's say, U.S. empire, around the world or white supremacy here in the United States, that uh, these uh, acts of injustice and oppression are really just aberrations in a longer process of moving toward a more perfect union. So in effect, uh, American innocence helps apologize for any cracks that ever uh, hit the armor of American exceptionalism itself. And so both of them are often employed together because these debates are happening all the time and these struggles are happening all the time. And we wanted to highlight how there are two contending voices and two contending struggles always going on. And it's between those who are seeking to expose and to transform the conditions of oppression and exploitation, which the United States pervades all around the world um, and which become heavily suppressed under the guise of American exceptionalism. And then there is the narrative of the ruling elites, which American exceptionalism, I think, wholly characterizes, where uh, the United States is posited as this advanced, positive, and progressive force around the world, when in fact, um, all of the evidence points to the contrary. And we really wanted to highlight all of the different manifestations that we could think of as being the most critical examples of this. Right, right. Um, so, when in your critique there, um, you what's interesting about it, and I think uh, important, is that you are critiquing both the right and well, let's say this the right and the so-called left or uh, conservatives and liberals uh, for sharing the same framework. Is is that right? Can you elaborate on that? Yes, it's definitely on the mark. Uh, we really got motivated to write this book because there is a trend here, especially in the United States, but we believe it's very pervasive across the Western world. But here in the United States, there is this pervasive influence of American exceptionalism where even the most leftist currents in the United States, and this isn't just liberals because we definitely ensure that our book primarily focuses on those who would consider themselves either sympathetic or uh, along the Democratic Party's ideological spectrum, because we believe that's where the engine of American exceptionalism is. But it's not only that, it's those who claim to be even outside and more independent of uh, that line of political thought and institution that still promote and fall into the trap of American exceptionalism by, let's say, focusing much more on the perceived uh, otherization of countries around the world, for example, and falling into the narratives of the CIA and the U.S. political class and the Pentagon generally about how those institutions talk about 
um, countries like China, countries like Syria and Libya, while uh, saying nothing about the United States' role in creating catastrophes and failed states and uh, having a real good reason to outright lie about what is going on around the world in order to achieve its uh, primary objective of maintaining dominance and ensuring that uh, nations all around the world kowtow to um, its interests. So we wrote this book in a lot of ways because of this trend on even the so-called far left, the so-called radical left, where uh, the ideology of American exceptionalism is very strong and we wanted to explain why that would be. And I think uh, we have so many different avenues that we look at this issue uh, around, whether it is our chapter on the repression of leftist movements in the United States and how that fed into uh, the narrative of pro-Americanism, or whether it is looking at how the our under, how our understandings of inclusion over the last 30 years have been weaponized by uh, ruling class institutions like the media and academia to uh, help engender and embed a particular way of looking at leadership and a particular way of looking at the way that we organize as more about uh, public relations and more about getting in to office those who more represent us as oppressed people rather than looking at how the institutions themselves are oppressive inherently. Right. Um, I, I think your ideological stance uh, is interesting and uh, deserves uh, some elaboration uh, a a bit more because, uh, you know, as you, you rightly say just now, I mean, you're, you're, or you interestingly say, let's say, you are criticizing not only mainstream conservatives and liberals, but even critiquing the, um, well, of course, the far right, but also the far left. And, um, well, before I get uh, go there, let me just clarify with you. Uh, Would you characterize your own work as being um, explicitly ideological? I would, because I I think that these times really call for an understanding of ideology and a real engagement with it. I think that, um, unfortunately, a lot of journalists uh, who consider themselves as grounded in social movements and grounded in the struggle of the people tend to avoid the ideological aspect because it brings... Uh, about a lot of criticism and sometimes even condemnation for attempting to chart a vision rather than just to illuminate the reality as it exists. Um, It does take having both, having an understanding of why certain processes happen as well as understanding the processes that are happening. So uh, we definitely made this book explicitly ideological and and, tar- and actually focused on ideology first and foremost because we felt that there's something missing right now. Uh, we talk about in our introduction how there was, and I think that this is still true here in year 2020, but in 2016, it was about a, a year uh, plus before we began to write the book, uh, 
there was this insurgent movement in the United States uh, for very progressive demands like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and um, to, uh, you know, cancel student debt and things like that, that really stem from the Occupy Wall Street movement, which I, um, you know, joined uh, in a lot of ways during the 2011 uprising here in New York City. And uh, those movements tend to die very quickly, especially within the grasp of the Democratic Party, whenever Democratic Party influence ends up seeping its way through these movements. And so uh, we believe that there was a real need to talk about ideology because we felt that ideology was the missing element, you know, understanding and being able to analyze what is going on as it's happening, as well as being able to put that into historical, political, uh, and economic context uh, all at the same time is very important to strengthen movements. And we wanted this book to be about strengthening movements uh, that uh, want and seek to improve the lives of working class people and oppressed people, but just don't have uh, the uh, level of understanding yet to um, not fall into some of the traps that American exceptionalism and its purveyors, especially in the Democratic Party, lay out for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I asked the question, I, I certainly wasn't meaning ideological in a pejorative sense, but but certainly people do mean that very often, especially in the mainstream, because, um, because you, you know, an ideology sort of gives you a vision and, and a lot of people may not realize that they do have some sort of vision and therefore some sort of ideology, but, but they don't recognize it. And I think that's kind of something you're exposing here in the book. And, and by being explicitly ideological, I understand that there are dangers because then there are people who may automatically just dismiss you because of what you know they you know your ideology is is declared as and and then they'd say you're subjective and uh, and um you're just picking out facts to um bolster your case that um that actually i let me ask you about that because that's an interesting thing i mean as a journalist you know the, the mainstream um you know, journalistic profession as well. You know, it's just the facts. We need to be objective. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, taking sides. Let the reader decide, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, and let's just seek out the truth, no matter where it takes us. And uh, if if people uh, people will criticize and have criticized ideological journalists as you know, um, uh, you know just using some facts conveniently and twisting things and, and turning it towards their ideological an, uh, answers because they have the answers predetermined already and, um, and they're just looking to, um, uh, to bolster that and, and not even contradict their ideology. So how do you respond to people who might criticize ideologically-based journalism which I uh, I think you would agree, you know, you you are part of. I don't know if you'd use that phrase, ideologically driven journalism, but but you, you understand the question. I I hope. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do understand the question. Well, what I would say is that there is no way of escaping ideology as much as, especially so-called mainstream uh, journalists would like to believe, because 
um, in this moment of just unprecedented um, imperial monopolization, when you have uh, so few corporations controlling much of the media around the world, when you have such a concentration of capital and power and wealth in the hands of so few people, and when you have so few countries really dictating the affairs of much of the world right now, uh, there is no way to escape ideology because, uh, you know, it is my belief and I think that there's so much evidence to show that uh, ideology is really built into the reality that we live in. So if we work for, let's say, the New York Times, then we are ultimately under the diktats of what the New York Times wants from us. Uh, we can see that journalists in the New York Times tend to have a hard time going outside of the lines of how the, the Pentagon and the CIA and the U.S. political class in general talks about foreign policy and foreign policy objectives. We never really hear the side of China or Syria or Libya and how they may be thinking about what the U.S. military does abroad. So there really is no way of escaping ideology, especially when we are living in a world where the struggle between contending classes and contending uh, forces of power really do shape how we live just on a day-to-day -day basis, but also they shape the way that we think. And that's what this book tries to get at. It tries to get at the fact that we uh, can be objective in the sense that we can go through an investigatory process which looks at the evidence of what happens during certain processes. We talk about the, uh, the invasion of Korea, for example, killing uh, millions of people, threatening nuclear war against China and so many other disasters from that period. We also talk about the U.S.'s real role in World War II, which is backed up by so much evidence up to this point, not only using two nuclear bombs during that war, but also waiting hand and foot until the European world, as well as the Soviet Union, uh, were damaged to the point where the United States could claim uh, so-called global supremacy, that there's a lot of these calculations that often go missing and a lot of these facts that often go missing because of ideology, because American exceptionalism and the uh, elites and, and the ruling elites that wield it uh, want to not only erase our historical memory, but they want to drive exactly how we understand history and material reality currently itself, uh, that there is a concerted effort to ensure that our uh, ability to analyze phenomenon is completely limited to already predetermined facts like the United States, even if it creates uh, tens of millions of premature deaths around the world due to war even as it is the principal force for the most heinous wealth inequality that we may have ever seen in human history, even as it uh, parades and peddles white supremacist ideology in the United States and all across the world to demonize and dehumanize a large section of the global population, even after all of these things, the torture, uh, the uh, complete destruction of entire societies that the United States is still the best that we have. And I believe that that itself is a very ideological phenomenon that most journalists at this moment, especially here in the United States, where so few corporations own the entire media, that's the line that they 
that's the ideological line that they walk on and uh, whether they like to admit it or not. I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I think it's important to, to point out the ideological basis of all journalism, especially those that uh, um, uh, toe the line. Not, I wouldn't say toe the line, but, but those who um, talk about objectivity as if there is no ideology there. Th- there is, and uh, it's, it's important to be explicit about it. And ideology is something I'm, I'm very interested in, in general. And, and I think the ideology behind your book, or, or that informs your book, it's not behind it, it's really, you know, it pervades it, it, it goes all throughout. I, um, you know, I n- notice a, a few things there that, that are interesting that I'd like you to elaborate on. Um, but let me let you uh, say what, uh, what your perhaps influences are and, and how you would describe your ideology. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. My, the influences on my ideology really stem from the global struggle against imperialism, as well as the revolutionary struggle here in the United States, especially for self-determination. Um, the struggle for self-determination of black Americans in the United States has been wholly influential to me because I do come from a country which has an over century long history battling with foreign powers, and that's Vietnam, battling with foreign powers to achieve independence and dignity and the right to develop on its own terms. And so uh, those struggles, the struggle abroad for emancipation from colonialism and imperialism, uh, these systems that shape uh, racism and these uh, understandings of American exceptionalism that we talk about, as well as the domestic struggle here in the United States, the class struggle as well, uh, to uh, fight power head on and to organize and try to envision a new society. That is really what has inspired me to write this book and to continue to uh, write in general, uh, to try to synthesize uh, new ideas that are rooted in history and rooted in this uh, people's struggle for a new society that's based on human need rather than the private profits of the few, which I believe is the principal struggle and principal contradiction, which shapes so many of the problems that we see and the problems that uh, constantly get buried and distorted and misunderstood because of this very pervasive ideology of American exceptionalism, which discredits and attempts to glorify a society that uh, is uh, rooted in slavery and rooted in genocide and rooted in this a really sordid history that has yet to be reckoned with and has yet to be understood as something that lives on uh, to this day, that there was no social revolution in the United States. There hasn't been a uh, reformation of the ways in which this society works. What are the fundamental drivers of so-called U.S. progress? And uh, just experiencing that personally um, through you know, economic, uh, personal economic struggles, as well as, uh, you know, being a longtime um, target of racism 
there's still a lot, as we're seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's still a lot of racism and white supremacy thrown at um, Asian Americans as well. And just my lifelong struggle to attempt to unite people across not only this country, but just countries around the world uh, to fight this, what I believe is a common enemy, which is uh, this concentrated wealth and power in the hands of so few is, is really what drove uh, me to write the book as well as uh, just drives my, uh, a bit, my ability and desire to continue to, to do projects like this, which focus on helping bring all of us to a higher level of understanding so we can actually organize a higher level of political activity that's more effective than uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. De- I mean, um, definitely going through um, your book and listening to you just now, uh, the particularly the critique of the right and the left. Yeah, I, I totally see the influence of the, particularly the black nationalist critique of America, which had a long history. You know, Malcolm X being perhaps the primary um, person, you know, but, but goes, you know, I, I suppose even Garvey and stuff, but but certainly Malcolm X's critique of the right and the left, the black nationalist critique of America itself, and uh, well, you mentioned the self determination of Black Americans. Yeah, there's there's definitely that I see, and it's it's interesting. But um, and then you're you're also w- would you call yourself um, Marxist or not? I would say so. Um, you know, these terms can be very, um, you know, very broad. And, and I think so yeah. many people have so, so many yeah. ways of understanding them depending on their own political affiliation. But for myself, um, you know, Marx and the works of Marxism, uh, depending on which works they are, have been so influential too because um, really, the whole weight of the oppressive apparatus that we talk about, the the system of imperialism that we talk about, and the ideology of American exceptionalism is geared towards suppressing these works and suppressing not only the works, but also what the works were analyzing. Because a lot of people believe, I think wrongly, that you know Marxism is is really rooted in this intellectual exercise of trying to understand political economy. But uh, when you actually do read the works, you realize that a lot of them are are grounded in trying to understand political economy from what working people and oppressed people were doing on the ground at that point. I mean, you know, reading Ho Chi Minh and how influential his work has been on me, you see just the uh, complete commitment to uh, connecting the struggle to free Vietnam from colonialism to uh, trying to understand and outline uh, a path forward that's based on what is this struggle really all about? And I think that's what we try to emulate in the book is uh, this idea that, yes, we can put down the facts. We can also uh, analyze certain phenomenon. Like we go through the Obama period pretty, um, pretty deeply in chapters uh, 17 and 18 as well. And we uh, didn't just do that to outline, look at all these horrible things that uh, the Obama administration did, but we wanted to say why uh, they were done in this way and how it was so effective and why it was so effective. And so I think uh, we try to take that, sh- that kind of approach throughout 
everything that we talk about in the book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In, ter- in terms of the Marxism too, I mean, the whole tradition of of Black Marxism uh, is is also very important, and and I see that uh, I, I I see that in your work. Um, and it, it reminds me of some kind of stuff that Pathfinder, I don't know if you know those publishers, mm-hmm. but uh, in the 60s and 70s, and, and they publish a lot of Malcolm X's stuff. Yeah, and, you know, and tying it into the global struggle. I mean, I always find it um, quite amusing when people call Malcolm X a civil rights leader mm-hmm. because he was told he was for his whole argument was against civil rights and for human rights. Uh, and um, they they misunderstand um, the radical uh, nature of his critique, which which I think your your book um, really um, takes up. You know, it it really takes up in a in a modern way. And you know, as you said, you know, even taking it to a critique of the Obama administration. I mean, there are. Um, let me just take. You have twenty one essays looking at. You know various aspects of of history, of culture. Uh, why, why don't you explain the way you organized those twenty one chapters and the types of of topics and issues you've chosen? Sure. So we organized the book uh, pretty consciously to kind of highlight uh, various aspects of American exceptionalism, at least those aspects that uh, frame. Uh, our understanding of imperialism and uh, capitalism and racism. We go first through um, our introduction of what it is, and we use examples through history. And uh, we try to uh, use American exceptionalism as a way to debunk myths by talking about how the ideology presents certain aspects of history. Let's say uh, the... Uh, process of the American, so-called American Revolution itself. And we write about these historical processes as being not only so mythologized by American exceptionalism, but also we go through the reality of what actually happened uh, during these periods. We talk about the Korean War, we talk about uh, World War II, we talk about um, the so-called American Revolution being a struggle to preserve slavery rather than to uh, free the so-called colonies here in the North American mainland from the yoke of the British monarchy. So we talk about uh, these historical instances to show that uh, there really was a concerted effort to create a narrative which supported the underlying objectives of all these processes, which was to actually consolidate power and to make a more effective a form of imperialism and white supremacy and capitalism that are so relevant today. Then we move on to certain topics that at the time especially were so influential over the political discourse, but which significantly highlighted how American exceptionalism is really an ideology of white supremacy and that this ideology is uh, supported and ultimately wielded by not just uh, people like Donald Trump, uh, right-wing ranchivist racists, but also uh, the so-called enlightened uh, Democratic Party liberal, you could call them left, um, but really they're firmly on the political right at this point. But we talk about issues like the Charlottesville 
uh, protests of the so-called Unite the Right activists, uh, these far-right, um, alt-right forces who were, you know, marching on Charlottesville. There was a violent protest, but then uh, the so-called opposition to Trump, the so-called resistance, um, you know, ultimately caved to the notion of American exceptionalism by trying to unite all Americans, quote unquote, around the idea that uh, these protests didn't represent what the United States was all about. And that gave Donald Trump the leverage to say, well, if we're going to take down statues of people like Robert E. Lee, then we're going to have to do it of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington because they were all slave owners. So we talk about this dynamic of how uh, liberals and conservatives, right-wingers and so-called uh, neoliberals and Democrats uh, really do um, you know, reinforce each other in the sense that uh, they kind of carry the same objectives policy-wise, but use American exceptionalism in different ways in order to achieve them. So uh, right now, we believe that the liberals and the Democrats are in, interested most in preserving this American exceptionalist image, while the right wing is more interested in talking about how far astray the United States has gone from this exceptionalist image, and they're trying to redeem it uh, through right wing and racist imperatives. So we talk about this throughout the book. We talk about how the like, like the attack on Colin Kaepernick, for example, and the way that the Black Lives Matter movement devolved in so many ways represents uh, this critical struggle of uh, you know forces trying to either be independent of American exceptionalism or falling into its trap. We also have uh, many chapters uh, later on about the economic aspect of American exceptionalism, this American dream narrative, which just completely distorts our understanding of capitalism and the crisis that it has created for so many working people, especially black workers here in the United States, and that this American dream narrative has created so much disillusionment amongst the population because it is so far flung from the reality on the ground. Um, and then later on, we take a, a more uh, a, a focus on foreign policy, imperialism, and uh, we also highlight certain critical issues like Russiagate, for example, or this so-called identity politics trend here in the United States, which we call more the politics of inclusion which we believe has been so detrimental to our ability to understand not only what real progressive and radical leadership should be and should look like, but also um, it has been wielded by the ruling elites to make uh, more effective evils, to make leaders who are even that much more subservient to the imperatives of imperialism, but also so much more effective in being able to um, achieve them and to be able to worsen the conditions on the ground for us. And uh, we really highlight Obama, the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons. Um, and this was a time before she has uh, basically lost all legitimacy uh, in so many, into so many. But uh, we really highlight how this trend of inclusion has also gone hand in hand with the decline in living standards and the escalation of endless wars and basically just the uh, complete expansion of all of the most oppressive features of U.S. imperialism, which um, have gone largely unquestioned because now there are so many political leaders who are believed to represent us as, 
as folks who are victims of this system. And we uh, believe that it was so important to just highlight how that was operating and how American exceptionalism operates to reinforce this notion that uh, representation is the most important uh, aspect of our struggle. And that if we can just make the United States look and feel like the society it has always been said to be, then somehow we are going to make our way out of this uh, condition, these deplorable and disastrous conditions that we find ourselves in. Right. I mean, and um, I forgot, you know, in the ideology part um, to, to bring this in, the, the other person I, I see, in a sense, haunting your work, to, to use that sort of um, communist manifesto uh, metaphor, is Noam Chomsky. Um, you know, in manufacturing of consent and, and his whole um, critique, you know, from from way back about the role of the media in American imperialism, both the right and the left. Um, I guess two questions I have is, is how influential um, was that on you? Uh, do you uh, have any differences um, with his opinion? And then how does this, uh, because that's how I understand your um you're bringing up the idea of fake news and then how does this concept of, of fake news tie into all the things you were just talking about um throughout your book yes uh well we we take an interesting conception of fake news because we do go over a bit of the history of how that term was uh, deployed how both the obama and clinton wing of the democratic party really did uh raise the term as a, a threat to their own kind of stranglehold on the dominant narrative of American exceptionalism, where uh, they blamed online uh, activity as uh, spreading fake news to undermine their own political legitimacy. And then Donald Trump ended up taking it and running with it in a much more effective way for himself. Um, But our conception of fake news is different in the sense that we believe not only does the ruling class just have an extensive history of lying, and actually uh, that's probably what they're most effective at doing, but also that um, this ideology of American exceptionalism and uh, its uh, counterpart, American innocence, really uh, are fake news in and of themselves, that uh, they represent an ideological strand of the ruling class and an ideological weapon of the ruling class, which uh, inherently spreads myths and erases historical memory to ensure that the real fake news, i.e. beliefs in the U.S.'s inherent superiority, um, the commitment to uh, the United States as a human rights purveyor rather than a purveyor of violence, as Martin Luther King would have put it. Uh, that there are these pervasive ideologies that actually uh, represent fake news themselves. And we, uh, you know, didn't take directly from Noam Chomsky. Um, We are pretty familiar with his work. Uh, We wanted to offer something that was a little more complex in the sense that we not only uncovered these uh, lies that have been uh, that have been 
promoted as truths from the ruling class and just the reality behind them, the massive destruction uh, in, you know, instances such as the U.S. NATO invasion of Libya or uh, whether we're talking about the decline of capitalism, American capitalism, and how that has been so devastating for working people. Um, we not only uncover these devastating aspects of American exceptionalism and the system that it defends, but we also decided that it was important to talk about just why this occurs, because I believe that um, even though it's really easy to say, well, powerful people are protecting power, we try to outline, well, what exactly is that power? And we really defined it as the power to maintain a system uh, predicated upon the private profits of a few, but also the power to be able to shape the narrative in service of that objective, to be able to create a material reality such as mass incarceration and police violence and uh, the otherization of entire peoples in order to uh, maintain and expand on this sense of white humanity and imperial humanity, which allows and justifies all of the most heinous aspects, policies, and conditions uh, that imperialism uh, led by the United States uh, employs around the world. So uh, in some ways we are influenced by Chomsky, but we try to go a little further in mm -hmm. our conclusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly um, since he wrote uh, the whole uh, post postmodern um, you know, Foucauldian and uh, Derrida look at discourse um, has has deepened and, and developed and yeah, and, and definitely bringing, understanding the, the nature of power in um, a lot more subtle ways um, is, is definitely part of your narrative, I, I think. And, you know, in, you know, there are many topics as you, you talk about there that you cover, you know, um, things like uh, even, you know, the American Revolution. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, you know, your argument about how it was uh, there to preserve slavery because in the British Empire, <laughs> the former British Empire where, where I'm located, I'm, I mean, slavery was abolished uh, in 1834, which is much before the United States. And, uh, and that, that's interesting, the, the whole movement here and how America was actually pretty late in abolishing slavery. And, um, but yeah, uh, you know, you have things like, well, the Korean War, Charlottesville, um, Black Lives Matter, um, you, know, uh, you know, billionaire capitalists, um, uh, U.S. human rights, uh, hu humanitarian um, sort of liberal interventionism, uh, blame Russia, um, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, uh, and their politics. You, know, so you have all these um, very interesting topics. Which ones of them do you think are probably uh, the most important ones that, that you've looked at in terms of that, you know, people would, would say, wow, you know, I never really thought of that before I, or I never saw it. I know your book is, is full of that, but, but are there any ones that stand out? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. I would say 
that um, you name some of them, but uh, I would say that our chapter, uh, the third chapter about was the American Revolution, Revolutionary for Slaves, uh, I believe is a very important one because it really synthesizes the great work of Gerald Horn in outlining this extensive history of what the colonialists and the capitalists uh, who were really the driving force of the so-called American Revolution, what they were thinking, the stupendous profits that they were making from the trade in slaves, as well as just the larger geopolitical context. There was this larger geopolitical context where not only was domestically were were there these huge insurrections in places like Antigua, Jamaica, um, Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, uh, but also there was this external force of uh, contending empires uh, Spanish, uh, the French, the Dutch, uh, they were all fighting with uh, the British monarchy uh, for possession of these colonies. And this system of slavery, which required an entire class of people, Africans, to be uh, enslaved at the behest of a very small white minority, was actually creating a lot of problems for the British Empire and the British monarchy. And so there was this move not only to arm Africans to uh, defend, create a buffer class to defend colonies like Antigua, but there was also this move to consider the abolition of the slave trade, not necessarily of slavery, but of the slave trade Mm -hmm. because of how costly it was to the British Empire in maintaining uh, these colonies at the rate that they were expanding, like in the North American mainland. And so when this trend was observed by colonialists, many of whom were escaping from places like Cuba and Antigua for respite because there was actually a white majority um, in the North American mainland, it was one of the few, it was, um, you know, in places like Georgia, which was literally founded as a white colony to buffer from uh, the Spanish, Spanish Florida's incursions of arming Africans to, um, to try to take more territory. Uh, there was this... A trend towards abolition of the trade, which was seen as so threatening to the interests of North American colonialists um, that are perceived to be now the founding fathers. And this was all this all culminated in the Somerset case of 1772, where an escaped slave made their way to the shores of London and was found under English common law to have the right to be free on uh, the territory. Um, so all of that. Uh, it's so important to understanding how this origins myth, which is really connected to American exceptionalism, this idea that the American Revolution was a progressive step in history, is actually not only outright false, but actually, but it actually um, helps to erase the current existence of, of Black Americans today, the current condition of Black America today, where so many of these afterlives of slavery continue to plague Uh, black people, whether it's through mass incarceration, through the police violence, through the discrimination in employment, the mass unemployment, uh, having double, triple the rates of poverty of white Americans, all of this is still rooted in this uh, origins myth that uh, continues to erase these uh, realities that black Americans continue to face. And then I think um, our take on foreign policy generally, so I think that there are folks who are against wars, for sure, but there are not a lot of people here in the United States that understand uh, what these wars are really all about. And by 
going into, for example, World War II, which is probably the most mythologized war and probably the most important war for American exceptionalism. By going into the details, the historical record about, well, how come U.S. corporations like Ford and uh, GM, et cetera, um, IBM, why were they financing um, Nazism prior to it taking power in Germany? Why was it that the United States waited so long to enter the war at all? Why was it that there was so much talk about uh, Nazism being a very useful bulwark against the Soviet Union, even while Europe was getting pummeled by um, that same uh, Nazist force um, abroad? And why is it that um, after the United States entered it really just caused more devastation and destruction and didn't do much in the way of fighting Nazism like, let's say, the Soviet Union did, sacrificing 27 million people um, for the cause of preventing uh, Nazism and preventing the Hitler uh, regime from being able to spread its tentacles around the world where the Soviet Union was seen as uh, the primary marker of what that would be. And that was actually um, Nazism's principal objective was to overthrow the Soviet Union. And the United States shared that in many ways. So a lot of the activities that the U.S. participated in during World War II were actually meant to intimidate the Soviet Union. And we talk about the firebombing of Dresden, which killed um, upwards of uh, 150,000 people, although there are many who want to say it was just 10,000 or 15,000. But there are observers who say it was at least 100 times that amount. And then you think about the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan and how those were wholly unnecessary. And there's extensive historical record that shows that they were just dropped to demonstrate to the Soviet Union what the U.S.'s air capacity was all about and what could happen if the Soviet Union decided that it was the top dog on the geopolitical, uh, you know, in the geopolitical realm. So we believe that our ability to understand just how mythologized foreign policy of the United States has been over the course of especially the last 70 years, but also just throughout the course of history and how it's so important in uncovering American exceptionalism as the ideology that it is and that it, uh, you know, and how it protects these powerful interests uh, that a lot of people still think are pretty democratic, especially in the arena of uh, World War II and that aspect of history. Everyone wants to be a part of this trend where, yes, fascism was defeated and U.S. democracy liberated the world. And guess what? Wages increased in the United States as well because of the war economy and the struggle for labor. That there's a lot of this, um, that there's a lot of this romanticism about especially that period of history, which I think we do a pretty good job of showing that Uh, Not only was it still principally exclusionary for oppressed peoples like black Americans, but also it was a a period of great strife and of great imperial treachery waged by the United States uh, for its own objectives. And that whatever struggles um, occurred that actually improved the condition of working people need to be credited to working people and oppressed people themselves and not. Uh, the ruling class, which, as we have seen over the last 40 years, uh, will take away any gains that have been made um, at the behest of capital when the time is right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are are very interesting things. And uh, 
I mean, those those topics uh, fit in so much into my own interests, like like even say the American Revolution, and I mean, the American colonies and the and the West Indian colonies were they were not really differentiated, and uh, I mean, the wealth of New York and Boston, I mean, it was predicated on the molasses grown right here in the West Indies where I am, and uh, and and when you you look at the you know the whole uh, creation of, of America and the Americans understanding of its history. You know, I, as a Caribbean person, whenever I, I go there, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised at how ignorant um, they are about the foundations of their country. Yeah. So that's a, a very interesting point. Uh, I think it, and yeah, the world war two um, uh, thing, because I mean, after world war two, that's when America became the superpower. And uh, so that's that's very interesting. I, I don't know if you if you see that as sort of accidental or if that was um, uh, something much more um, planned out. But before World War Two, America was not, um, you know, the world power it was um, uh, afterward. So I, 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 d- does that figure into your um, analysis there? For sure. Uh, We definitely talk about and focus a lot on the period when the United States became a superpower because uh, this was when the ideology of American exceptionalism could really uh, build inroads globally. But in the United States, uh, this ideology becomes so pervasive at this time because of the ways in which the domestic situation changed. You had... Um, a scenario where working people have been struggling, waging strikes, uh, organizing unions, uh, building a real uh, movement to demand improved conditions. And the war economy, the imperialist war economy, was able to provide that for a time by uh, becoming a superpower and by looting the rest of the world and creating more favorable conditions for workers here. And that especially white American workers. And so that dynamic allowed American exceptionalism, especially this notion of the American dream, to become so embedded in the framework of how even working class people understand the United States because there still is to this day, despite the complete and utter uh, decline that the empire is experiencing, that capitalism is experiencing, and that so many people have been devastated by, there is still this idea that, well, at least we're not over in, let's say, China or over in Vietnam or over on the African continent or in the Caribbean or anywhere else in the world where actually poverty is a lot worse and conditions are a lot worse and there are just autocrats and dictators over there, that it really was when the U.S. became this so-called imperial superpower where its framework for democracy as being a democracy superior to all others and a form of society that was... uh, head and shoulders human versus the rest of the so-called third world, the socialist world, um, as well as just uh, peoples in the United States who represented uh, those uh, potential scourges. uh, There was this ability to globalize um, that dichotomy and that contradiction, which still has a lot of consequences today. So um, this uh, moment from 1945 on where the United States becomes the imperial superpower, 
becomes the capitalist superpower and is able to wield its influence in such a way where it normalizes it without a real competitor. Um, although during the um, 45 to 91, there was a socialist bloc, and that was a big reason why these ideology, this ideology became so much more important. Um, it has taken a toll on the consciousness of working people and working class people. Uh, I was just looking at a poll yesterday uh, that showed that 54% of people in the United States believe that China should pay reparations to the U.S. for the coronavirus, that there is this superiority, entitlement, and, uh, and belief that the United States has the right to demand and to shape, uh, to demand from other countries anything that it wants and to shape the narrative in any way that it wants, which is um, so pervasive and so uh, damaging, I think, to our ability to wage solidarity, build solidarity with others, and to build effective movements um, against the forces that are causing all of the injustice that we see in the world. Yeah, you know, um, the your your narrative is is explicitly against this idea that um, America is working towards a more perfect union, and it may have started flawed, but uh, but um, you know we're fixing it, right? That that's kind of basically both the liberal and conservative. And and I suppose in in many ways the far left um, uh, narrative that they have, which you can call a kind of ideology in a sense. Now, but but you uh, in your book you you are basically saying that that this whole mythology, um, and and I suppose propaganda, which is fake news, um, of American exceptionalism and American innocence, has been there from the beginning. It continues now, and it, it's there's um in in a sense there seems uh, no let up except you know certain struggles here and there. Uh, what it appears, to, uh, and I know that the book, as you state in the introduction, and you stated here, is is not just an academic book. It's for activists, it's for um, you know political organizers, community workers, etc. To think about their their condition so so taking this line that that inherently um the united states has this flaw right that that is it that it can never be erased and what has to happen is that america as we understand it has to be in a sense destroyed or overthrown so does that make this like an anti-american book or uh, how, how do you um uh how would you characterize it do, do you think that's an unfair uh, conclusion that i've drawn well i think that the idea of anti-americanism is and we talk about it in the book is rooted in uh, these ideologies and in, in understanding that america is somehow defined as the way that the u.s ruling class defines it which is this democratic arbiter of liberty and freedoms uh, for all, uh, where it has some sort of uh, sanctimonious right to um, these values, but also to the ability to, um, you know, ward off any criticism and do whatever it likes around the world and here in the United States. So, you know, uh, we talk about this and we say that our book is not anti-American in the sense uh, that we are condemning 
people in the United States who are living, who may, who are living here, who may be taken by these ideologies and really are invested in, um, you know, the exceptionalism of the United States. There are many good, even well-meaning activists who believe that if we just take hold of these values and make sure that they're lived by, then uh, we can actually live in the world uh, that supposedly the forefathers had um, ascribed to um, to them. So uh, we talk about our book as anti-American in the sense that we are against the system that American exceptionalism defends, uh, and we are against the narrative of Americanism, which posits that it's okay for uh, you know certain sections of the world population, nations around the world, uh, people who are considered non-white. This racist in, uh, uh, depiction of the United States as a an arbiter of liberty. Uh, what Thomas Jefferson called an empire of liberty um, that has the right to genocidally wipe out indigenous people and suppress uh, their current existence to com- keep black Americans in a state of wealthlessness and um, state oppression and uh, devastating amounts of poverty the, that the working class in general around the world can be plundered um, at any uh, rate that the United States deems fit through its financial institutions just because the United States uh, has the right and is ultimately the only alternative that people around the world have uh, to look towards when it comes to any sort of development. And I think it's that which we reject, that the racism, the white supremacy that American exceptionalism inherently pervades, and the real material manifestations of this ideology and empire and racism and capitalist exploitation, which we believe are the foundation. So if it is the foundation, then we need to be able to let go of uh, the ideas and the myths that American exceptionalism has promoted and be able to look with clear eyes at what this system is all about and uh, what we need to do to create an actual democracy and to create an actual um, society where freedoms like certain human rights as healthcare and education and employment and peace are prioritized. Just out of curiosity, I, I know this can take us um, down a long road, and 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 I know we don't have time, but I am curious. Do you think that perhaps do you think that electing Bernie Sanders would have been a positive step in your view? I, I that's I'd really like to know that in terms of your your framework of thinking, your your ideology. So you know, would electing Bernie Sanders help this? Have would that have helped it at all? What I will say about this, it, because we do talk about, uh, unfortunately, we you know published this book in 2019, but uh, a lot of our analysis is 2017, 2018, so post-2016 Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, we talk about it more as a phenomenon that points into a very positive trend where socialism is becoming more popular as a word, um, but we still talked about it as it's being it is rooted this uh, new socialist consciousness it's rooted in a new deal kind of politics 
which mm-hmm. reinforces American exceptionalism in a lot of ways, which is why Bernie Sanders had his own fundamental flaws that were exposed even more so in 2020 uh, when he decided to place Democratic Party unity and the unity uh, with the political establishment over his own uh, grassroots base. And, and we believe that that is a, just a fundamental flaw of what he was trying to do. And so, it, you know, your question to me is more about whether it was really possible for the system to accept a Bernie Sanders. And I think the past two elections have shown that uh, the ruling class here in the United States has no interest in any sort of social welfare agenda, um, even among someone like Bernie Sanders, who was not calling for a revolution. He was calling for a 21st century New Deal. And so if he were to be elected in the hypothetical sense, if we were talking about ideally, sure, I think that um, the movement behind him would have been energized, would have been inspired and motivated to hold him accountable. I really do believe that in a lot of ways. However, unfortunately, because the system was never designed to or had any interest in allowing him to uh, win, which I believe if all things were fair and square could have been a possibility, but because they were so committed to suppressing his movement, um, I don't believe that it was actually possible for it to happen. And that is something that I think his forces, the people who support him, um, really have to think about. And we try to push forward, well, why is it that the ruling class at this moment is so committed to stymieing any sort of social welfare agenda, even if it is narrowly just for U.S. workers and narrowly for uh, people here in the United States who are struggling living paycheck to paycheck? Why, why is there so much opposition to that amongst the ruling elite? And I think Bernie Sanders has done a big service in his last two elections in unearthing American exceptionalism in a lot of ways in showing that, well, working people are actually living in devastating conditions and conditions that are not fit for human life. And uh, there is this ruling class that is committed to keeping that in place. But Bernie Sanders himself is not committed to challenging that ruling class to the point of production and the point of power. So we, in effect, uh, his movement that he has led has been kind of held back by him as a political leader who still wants the status quo to exist. He just wants the status quo to be on the right path. So uh, he himself, as well as the people who advised him and the people who uh, really helped formulate his campaign, um, Uh, unfortunately fell into the American exceptionalist trap. And I think it's a big lesson in, well, what's the next step that must be taken for these forces, these young people who definitely, especially a lot of these young workers, I know a few of them, they are infuriated by this situation. And um, whether they believed Bernie Sanders could have helped if he was elected, I think would be answered as a, a wholehearted yes. But the establishment is designed in a certain way to prevent it. And Bernie Sanders showed that he had allegiances to that establishment himself. I think you're absolutely right. And I do think that um, your book sort of exposing this um, underlying ideology does explain some of the contradictions that, you know, Sanders kind of undermined himself purposely in in many ways. It seemed, you know, Joe Biden is my friend all the time, you know? Um, Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's right. Um, 
if to kind of um, move to a close here, you know, what it, to sum up the book, I suppose, after a, a reader has gone through your, you know, your extensive and wide ranging uh, and fundamental critique, what would be the one thing you'd like them to leave with? I think what I would like uh, people to leave with with our book is to really place the solidarity um, with people around the world as a principal uh, need and, and focus of our struggle for social justice to come, that um, there is also a need, and I think this is very interrelated to placing solidarity at the forefront of our movements, uh, a need to uh, really place white supremacy too um, when it comes to American exceptionalism and uh, at the forefront and to challenge all of the ruling class, not just the Trumps of the world, but really place the entire ruling class um, to, uh, you know, on trial for their reinforcement of the completely heinous conditions that uh, black people and oppressed people of various nationalities face in the United States, uh, because without doing so, our movements are so much weaker and uh, they only sow distrust amongst peoples whose movements have generally been the arc of progress, of real actual progress in the United States, both ideologically and material, and that would be the Black Liberation Movement. But in terms of an overarching uh, takeaway, I would say that uh, our book, because we focus so much on debunking the racist myths behind American exceptionalism, that we hope that by understanding these, that more people, especially in this Bernie Sanders wing of the uh, grassroots uh, working class uh, behind um, his campaign, but also uh, just uh, people generally will be able to see solidarity and see uh, the principal need to defend countries from imperialism first before going into any sort of uh, condemnation or critique of countries abroad will formulate, especially countries abroad that the U.S. doesn't like, that that will help formulate a more effective path for our struggles here in the United States. That there are so many friends that we have around the world who are willing to, you know, join us in demanding that the United States be held to account for its war crimes, as well as for the crime, war crimes that are hitting communities right here at home. I do think that there is a possibility for that. It's just that here in the United States, we don't have any forces uh, that are willing to put in that kind of work and um, that are willing to uh, make it make it happen. Okay, great. Are um are you working on anything right now that you'd like to let our listeners know about? Sure. So, you know, I continue to write weekly for blackagendareport.com, uh, so you can always catch my work there. But uh, right now I am working on a journal article for World Review of Political Economy about American exceptionalism in the age of COVID-19, talking about the U.S. response to COVID-19, both on the domestic and international arenas and how they really signal that American exceptionalism has been unmasked as an ideology that protects private capital, uh, the, the interests of private capital alone, and uh, that show that the United States is designed to exacerbate pandemics rather than to bring some sort of 
democracy, liberty, and freedom um, to any section of the population other than the ruling class. So I'm working on that right now, and hopefully um, we'll have that out uh, soon, as soon as the academic world allows. Oh, great, great. Well, that sounds great. So the book is American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny Haifung, uh, thanks so much for this interview. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me, Kirk. Thank you. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.